Hello, and welcome to the John Havlicek episode of the Hoop Theory Podcast, aka episode 17. My name is Logan Wortman. Not totally sure what the title of this podcast episode is right now that you've clicked on and started listening to, because we have a lot to talk about today. But the main point of this episode is to go over the Northwest Division in the Western Conference and do our preseason predictions for those teams like we've been doing, because we've already done the other two divisions in the West. So the Southwest Division, which is the Spurs, Mavs, Rockets, Pelicans, and Grizzlies. And then last episode, we did the Pacific Division, um, which is probably... While I was doing it, like I, I noticed that it, it's probably the most popular division in all of the NBA, just based off of you know the teams that are in it. Probably has the most fans out of any division. Um, Atlantic is probably second, but yeah. So it's the Warriors, the Lakers, the Clippers, the Suns, and um, the Kings. So you know the Kings are kind of the odd one out there, and I mean you don't really meet a lot of Clippers fans either, but they're in LA, so I'm sure they have a good amount. Regardless, that brings us to the next division in the Western Conference, which is the Northwest, like I said. But within this division, we have my lifelong favorite team, the Denver Nuggets. Then the Minnesota Timberwolves, which are slowly becoming the Nuggets. If that doesn't make sense, you'll probably get it later when I talk about them. But uh, then there's the Oklahoma City Thunder, the Portland Trailblazers, and the Utah Jazz. So as far as names of divisions go, I think the Northwest division is probably the worst or the least aptly named one, just because it's really just the collection of teams that are either out, like not next to any other teams, or ones that are just kind of excluded because all the teams that they're next to already have a full division. Uh, like Minnesota, you know, just looking at a map, obviously it should probably be uh, in that central division in the Eastern Conference, you know, with the other Great Lakes cities like Chicago and Detroit, and Cleveland, and Milwaukee, but no, they have Indiana in that group of five already, so uh, that leaves Minneapolis in the Western Conference, and then Denver and Utah are pretty close to each other, but Phoenix doesn't get grouped in with them because they're close enough to California to be with those guys, Uh, but then Portland, you know, all by itself up in the Pacific Northwest, and then, oh yeah, OKC also, I forgot to mention. Uh, who really should be probably in with the um, Texas teams and New Orleans and Memphis. But again, got to have five in each division. So this is really just the uh, all the misfit toys of the NBA uh, division landscape. So yeah, just kind of funny to have Oklahoma City considered Northwest in the United States. But let's stop wasting time rambling on nonsense and actually get on to all of the stuff that I'm going to at least try to jam pack into this episode. I don't know how long this episode is going to end up being, but I have a feeling it's going to be a while unless I just really speed through all of the teams in this division, because before we get to the uh, preseason predictions for all these teams, there's a few topics that I feel like are really um, pressing or, you know, things that I really want to try to hit on now that I'm here recording a podcast and these things are pretty big and major and somewhat affect this series that I've been doing a little bit and um, and yeah, just general, you know, basketball news. So I'll get into those. There's three really like stories or points I want to 
cover before we get into the normal episode. So stay tuned for that. We'll get into those in a second. Probably should have said this at the beginning, but just want to let you guys know that it would be greatly appreciated if you would follow the feed on Spotify. If you aren't already, uh, go check out the YouTube channel, subscribe over there, rate the show on Spotify. If you're listening on there, I think I already mentioned Spotify, but try to use that rating feature. Give the show five stars or one star or whatever you want to give it. (laughs) And if any other podcast platform that you guys are using allows for a rating, go ahead and do that too. But yeah, let's get into the 17th edition of the Hoop 3 podcast, which my initial guy I thought of for that was Jeremy Lin for number 17. But before I recorded uh, the intro, I was like, huh, maybe I should think about that a little bit more. It's kind of been a mixture of like the guy I just think of right away versus who I think is probably the best to ever wear the number. So um, I decided to go with the latter, uh, who I think is probably John Havlicek, Jay Hondo. So yeah, this is the John Havlicek episode of the Hoop Theory Podcast. So the first piece of news that I wanted to talk about before we get into the rest of the episode today was the Draymond Green situation or scandal, or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I feel like I use the word situation all the time. But yeah, basically what happened is Draymond Green punched his teammate, Jordan Poole, in a practice, if you didn't already know. So this was originally reported a few days ago, the day that it happened, I believe. But there's no video or anything of it. It was just, it was reported. They talked about it to the media in like press conferences because it was during training camp. So there's media around. Like it was a closed practice, so there wasn't any media within the practice at all, but it was just afterwards that they basically just declared or announced that a punch was thrown, but like that they weren't going to be doing anything about it really. Well, just as far as like suspensions and stuff goes, I guess. Like they weren't planning on suspending Draymond from any games this season or anything like that. You know, his role with the team is going to remain the same. Like Steph and Steve Kerr both said, They don't think it's something that's going to affect the rest of the season. But then the next day, the video was leaked, which right when I saw it, I could tell like somebody recorded it off of a screen. It looked like, you know, with a phone, they recorded it off like a laptop or some kind of monitor where they had the tape from the practice. So maybe somebody who works in like the video room, for the Warriors or somebody else who just happened to have access to it at that time or I don't know. The Warriors have been uh, investigating who leaked um, the video, how the video got out exactly. Yeah, that was kind of my initial reaction before I even saw the rest of the video was when I noticed like, oh, this really looks like something that wasn't supposed to be recorded. (laughs) Um Uh, For context, it's probably best for you to just look up the video, watch it yourself. You can tell that Draymond and Jordan Poole are kind of talking back and forth. There's no audio, but you can just kind of tell, especially when um, Draymond comes up and just kind of puts his chest into Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole pushes him off him, and then like immediately after that, Draymond throws a wild punch. I don't think people were um, expecting it. I don't think Jordan Poole was expecting it. Like, that's for sure. He didn't have his hands up or anything. It was just, just kind of pushed Draymond and wham. So, but yeah, immediately after that, I don't think it, the video was out yet, uh, but immediately 
after it came out that that happened, I think was when the tweet came out. Um, but there was a tweet about Poole's attitude being a lot different now that he's up for a pretty big contract extension, which that's like the interesting piece of this. I feel like the most interesting piece, the fact that Draymond Green, he's getting paid $27.6 million next year on a player option, which I'm sure, especially now, he's picking up. And he's probably looking at not a max extension for his, his next contract. That was already kind of what people were expecting, maybe, or, you know, there, there was speculation into whether or not he was going to get max contract uh, for his next extension because, you know, he's not quite the same player he was a few years ago. He's getting a little bit up there in years, and, you know, he's not really like a star player in like the most basic sense of that word. But, you know, he is a very important player uh, to the Warriors as a team. And, you know, he's a huge part of their culture, a huge part of their success over this past Steph Curry era that they've had in Golden State. That was the first time I feel like I said the word era like that. Usually I say era. I don't know what happened there. But another key to the Warriors' success over this past era, I guess, has been the fact that they've been fielding the most expensive roster in the league for quite a while now. Joe Lacob, the Warriors owner, he's been willing to spend heavily into the luxury tax in order to keep this team competitive and really, you know, bring them to that championship contender status. Like they're so far into the luxury tax at this point that signing a new player in free agency basically costs them five times as much as their salary is because of the, you know, like stacking escalating nature of the luxury tax structure in the NBA. So the fact that, you know, they have Jordan Poole, who's only like 22, I want to say, um, something around there, and other guys on the roster that they hope at least they'll be signing to bigger deals soon, you know, within the next few years. But Poole is up for a contract extension right now or next offseason technically, but you know, I already went over the whole classroom lesson uh, on that topic with the Aiton situation last episode. But a lot of people have been saying that Jordan Poole is going to get a similar deal to what Tyler Hero just signed for in Miami, which is a four-year, $120 million extension. And so if the Warriors are signing that, then that is going to very heavily affect what Draymond's next deal is going to look like. So... That's just kind of like this built-in dynamic or built-in drama, I guess, between the two of them. As far as I know, this is the first time that it's come out in a way that like there's any sort of actual beef or noticeable beef between these two guys. Like everything I've seen in the past has always been like they're bros and super close and get along well and stuff like that. You know, both going to college in the same state of Michigan and also Draymond just being like the emotional, you might want to call it, leader on this team. You know, like the heart and soul type of guy on this roster. He's kind of the big brother in a way to all these all these players on the team, all these younger guys especially like Jordan Poole. So that's what makes this kind of surprising. But also the whole contract situation that I just laid out, I feel like it has to have some sort of meaning or some sort of um, weight to it in this situation, something to do with all this, especially 
with that report or that tweet coming out after this altercation happened that claimed according to warriors players it it didn't like quote anybody but it said something along the lines of like warriors players have been noticing that jordan Poole has had a very different i'm paraphrasing but a different attitude um during training camp due to his potential upcoming uh lucrative contract extension and so then in the press conference with steve kerr and stephen curry i'll probably play the audio of the Steve Kerr one for you guys. The only thing I will say is that um, Jordan has been fantastic throughout camp. There was a report that I was made aware of last night that someone, someone put out there that, uh, that Jordan had an attitude in camp. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's been fantastic. So disappointing to see misinformation out there. Um, but I wanted to make sure I made uh, set the record straight on that. Everything else we will handle internally and um, we'll go from there. So that makes me think and other people think, because I've, I've seen this take from other people as well, the theory of you know that report or that tweet being sent out on behalf or at the request of Rich Paul, Clutch Sports, you know, that entity as a whole. Draymond's agency, um, for those that don't know, basically an effort to make the situation look a little bit better for Draymond. But I don't know. It's interesting because as far as what came out from like Steve Kerr and like Warriors people in those press conferences, even before the video leaked, was like basically like, oh, yeah, this happened. It was unfortunate. Like Draymond was out of line or whatever. But this isn't going to affect our upcoming season. There's no like, you know, real tangible uh, repercussions, you know, that will affect this season. So it seemed like a pretty good outcome for Draymond's side of it, you know, as far as like he could have hoped for um, because things could have been handled a lot worse for him. So I don't know. It makes it feel kind of weird that they still had to, you know, do this kind of fire control stuff with that tweet being sent out on top of, like him already getting off pretty easy. But I'm I'm like very, very confident that that video probably doesn't get leaked unless the Warriors handled it the way they handled it in this sort, sort of way that they did in those media sessions. Because I think somebody must have been upset or thought that they weren't doing enough to um, punish or, or discipline Draymond's actions. So an effort to try to shine light on what actually happened and get people uh, mad at Draymond and, and trying to get like justice, I guess, in a way, if you want to call it that, they, you know, record the video, send it to TMZ uh, to get spread all over the place like TMZ does. So, yeah, this has definitely become a much bigger story since the video came out a day later. Like it was kind of not it, like it was a story because I, I heard about it. I got like notifications for it about like just the fact that it happened. And I was, you know, I kind of, I probably would have just forgotten about it in a couple days, uh, you know, or, or not really thought about it anymore. But then the next day when I got the notification that there's a video now and went and watched that, then everybody's talking about it on all like the sports talk shows and stuff like that. It becomes a much bigger deal, much bigger story. So I don't know if this brings like the league in as like, um, Wow. Okay. I was mid-sentence. 
but I just pulled out my phone because I kept getting buzzes in my pocket and there's, <laughs> there's a notification here, um, that says Draymond is stepping away. Warriors Draymond Green taking temporary leave following the pool punch, um, which is a fun thing to call it, I guess, the pool punch. But apparently there's a quote from him, I failed as a leader, I failed as a man. So yeah, probably not going to just read through all of this article right now, but just kind of funny that got a little bit of a update on the situation while I'm talking about it. Um, I guess key things to bring out of this. Uh, another quote, you said, I was wrong for my actions that took place on Wednesday. For that, I have apologized to my team. I've apologized to Jordan. Yeah, and it says here, Green's actions were reportedly partially influenced by his and Poole's contract situations. Both players are eligible for extensions this season, and Poole is believed to be receiving a deal. Green didn't reveal the source of the issue uh, on Saturday, but said it was unrelated to the contracts. Wow. So Kerr said there's no set date on when Green will return to the organization. Okay, so this stuff changes a lot of what I was just going to talk about. Because I was just going to talk about possible punishments, which like, I still don't think there's going to be any. I don't know if this is just disguised to be as him choosing to step away, but it's also like advised or suggested by Kerr or somebody with the Warriors, like Bob Myers or somebody. I don't know. But yeah, I think I can just cap this off by saying this is the first time that I can really think of that it's really seemed like Steph, Clay, and Draymond probably won't all retire as Warriors, or at least there's a very good chance that they, they won't. I don't know if that was always a surefire thing in the past, but it's always seemed like that might happen, that probably will happen, that type of thing. But yeah, wouldn't be surprised if Draymond is on a different team in like a year or two. Yeah, interesting situation. And the reason I really wanted to bring it up was because I just talked about the Warriors last episode. So this, I feel like this has to change my prediction at least a little bit for them. So I'm changing my reasonable prediction from 56 wins to 54. And if anybody thinks that's cheating of me to do, because I already recorded the episode, I don't know, maybe you're right, but I just feel like since it's still before the season, I should be able to change it all the way up until like opening night, basically. But yeah, that's going to be my reasonable prediction for them. 54 wins. So, you know, still winning the Pacific Division in terms of regular season record. And I don't know if their ceiling changes a whole lot. I think I changed it from 65 to 64. And I kept their floor at 44. I don't know. I'd be pretty surprised if they lose more than that still. So overall, not too much of a change. But I just thought I would mention it because because we just talked about them last episode. But yeah, speaking of that concept of teams we just talked about, things possibly changing with them, the Lakers. Uh, since I recorded the last episode, I've heard rumors, like still very quiet rumors. I don't think it's super active right now, but just rumblings of the Lakers potentially trading Westbrook, you know, which obviously they they want to do. I'm sure Rob Palenka is looking into options for that. I'd be very surprised if he wasn't, but a potential trade being Westbrook plus two unprotected picks. Um, I think the only two that they have that they are capable of trading. Like they're two, they're down the line a little bit because they traded all of their picks before when they got AD from New Orleans. They traded all those picks for that trade package. 
but you know, since that was a few years ago, now they have a couple more down the line that they're, that are uh, trade eligible or whatever. And those I feel like are very coveted picks because their assets are so depleted right now. And that far on in the future, like five, six years from now is like, there's no way LeBron is still playing at that point. You know what I mean? Like the Lakers are probably going to be at least a pretty bad team. You'd be willing to bet. So those picks, especially unprotected are like very valuable right now. But yeah, the trade would be Westbrook and those two unprotected picks for Miles Turner and Buddy Heald, which I just love trades like this. I love them so much because I don't know what I would do. Like, I honestly think that there's a really good debate on both sides for, I mean, if I was the Pacers, I'm doing that. Like, let's just be clear. I'm not talking about on the Pacers side of things. Pacers, 1,000%, 100 times out of 100, I'm taking that trade. On the Lakers side of things, like, it's, you know, it's this perfect trade-off, it feels like, of do you want to become a top contender right now like make a push for another championship, which I really feel like this deal puts that in play this season. I'm like being serious with that. If they make this deal, they trade Russell Westbrook for Miles Turner and Buddy Heald. The Lakers are one of the top four or five contenders in the league right now. And there's no like clear favorite this year or really the past couple years now. Um, ever since the super teams have kind of died out and there's been this unbelievable parody that is so fun to have as a basketball fan where there's a bunch of these top teams. None of them are like clear, just giants over any of the others really, but there's just a lot of the really, really fun, competitive, competent teams that are all trying to come out on top. This firmly puts the Lakers at or near the top of that because it fixes so much of their shooting problems and it fixes so much of their defense problems and also just so much of like their making sense problems just on the court it gives them a clear lineup like to use and to go to consistently and close with and all that kind of stuff which i'm pretty confident would be patrick beverly at the one buddy healed at the two probably lebron at the three 80 at the four, like he wants, like he always is asking to have, is you know, not play center, always wants to be at the four. And Miles Turner at the five, which is the absolute like perfect five to pair with AD. Like if you're trying to appease Anthony Davis and be like, fine, you don't have to play five. I and I said this, when was that? Honestly, it was probably still the next man up at that point. Like it was before I started this podcast, the Hoop Theory podcast. But a couple of years ago in the playoffs. Um, when they got bounced out in the first round against the Suns, the year that the Suns went all the way to the finals. After that exit in the playoffs, I was doing this series uh, where all the playoff teams, that when they got bounced out, I would do like a podcast episode on them or like a little section on them where I would talk about, from my point of view, if I was a fan of that franchise, what I would want to see in the offseason, what I would want to see like done uh, moving forward to try to get them back on track or whatever. And like one of the main points I talked about was Anthony Davis, just his unwillingness to play five and his like whole thing of, I need to start at the four and just like them not having the right personnel for that. Other than Marcus Saul, who was very old and not like the same player he used to be. So it wasn't the best thing, but stylistically it worked really well. 
but they would just never really go to it because they had these other guys to play center that were kind of, I guess, more noteworthy at that point. And I don't know. They felt like they needed to give more minutes to those guys like Montrez Harrell and like uh, Andre Drummond. But that like hurt them on both sides of the ball so much because both those guys are clogging up the paint, not helping with AD at all. Like Marcus Gasol is a guy who can spot up a bit. He can facilitate. He can play defense. Uh, so it doesn't hurt you to not have AD at the five at that point because on offense, he spaces the floor so you can still have Anthony Davis as like the rim runner or, you know, the guy putting pressure on the basket in the paint and not having to use him as like a spot up four, which he's been terrible at recently past few years. So just getting that as, as a center is what I was saying. Like try to find a role player, something like a Marcus all like a, like, I don't remember if I gave any examples, but I think I said like maybe Sergi Baca, like there weren't honestly a lot of options that really works for that. Cause like one of the points too, was he needs to be a big traditional center to defend Jokic. Sorry, not really needs to be, but like, it'd be nice to have this also as a feature of this player, a big enough guy to defend positionally the giant superstars in the NBA, like Jokic and Embiid. So AD can still roam off ball and stuff. But yeah, let me just cut to the chase. Miles Turner, honestly, has to be. like I'm trying, my brain isn't working right now, but I'm trying to think of anybody else that would fit that archetype any better than Miles Turner. I don't think I even brought him up though. I might have, honestly. I might have brought brought him up in that episode that I'm referring to. But if I didn't, it was probably just because I was thinking of much lower level, like scaled down versions of that like something that would be affordable and realistic. Like Miles Turner wasn't really realistic at that point um, for them to just get in the offseason. But yeah, Miles Turner is one of the better rim protectors in the league. He's not like anything special in terms of defending on an island or being like super mobile or switchable, but you don't really need that next to Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis already is that. Um, So you just have unbelievable rim protection at this point. Like think about Giannis and Brooke Lopez, how good those guys are as a pair on defense. It's like that. Oh, and Brooke Lopez is a great example of another player that is that same archetype that I'm talking about. Miles Turner might be a little bit better in terms of the offense side of it, just because he's a he's a better shooter and can do more stuff with the ball. Defensively, I'd, I probably prefer Brooke Lopez. That may be a hot take, to be honest. But I'd probably, I don't know, I kind of like Brooke Lopez. Just I like the smart, savvy, veteran nature of the defensive side of the ball, but Miles Turner is a guy who is going to get a lot of blocks per game. That's for sure. So yeah, plugging him in as the five just works so well. Like Anthony Davis's uh, request this entire time he's been with the Lakers and the Pelicans for that matter of, I don't want to play five, find somebody else to start at five with me. um, So I can be the four. I've always felt like past several seasons, especially it's been very unrealistic or unreasonable of a request from him because there's like, so it's so hard to build that structurally with the roster, it's much easier. Like with the players that are most available to you, it's much simpler. It makes much more sense to just put Anthony Davis at the five and build around it that way. But starting with the the context of, okay, he has to be at four. Okay, so how can we still make this work? Miles Turner is one of the few answers to that question or that problem that we have in the league. And then Buddy Heald, of course, one of the best shooters in the league, so therefore provides one of the most amounts of spacing. That sentence did not make sense grammatically, but he provides a lot of spacing because he 
not just is a great shooter, so people have to stick up on him. He has a very, very deep range, uh, like borderline Dame Steph Curry type range. So yeah, that, I don't. That just makes a lot of sense. Like their defense is not like if this if this deal was made, their defense is not back to the level it was in 2020. Even if Anthony Davis is the same Anthony Davis he was two years ago, if he's like best defender in the league level, Anthony Davis, their defense is still not as good as it was back then. But this helps them a lot. It gets them much closer. Maybe I should rephrase that. I don't think it's as high of a ceiling in terms of their playoff defense. They might have a better regular season defense, to be honest, though, than they did in 2020 if this deal was made and Anthony Davis is the same player. You know, all those ifs, if those are confirmed or whatever, I'm not making any sense at this point, but if those are there, then they might have a better regular season defense at the end of the day just because of how important rim protection is, especially in the regular season. They can get by more without having as much perimeter defense out there. I'm just rambling at this point, like I tend to do, but hopefully you guys are following along. Basically just saying that if the Lakers go get healed and Turner. Oh, okay. Yeah. So how I set this up, I couldn't remember what, like why I was still rambling. So I was just talking about the reason why the Lakers should do it. But what I like about this deal is I don't know exactly what I would do because the other side of it is like your team is already so depleted at this point of assets because everything that you've done ever since LeBron has gotten there has been to maximize the right now, like maximize your roster right now. And you've moved all your picks, moved a lot of your young guys. The guys you brought in for LeBron have been guys that don't really seem like that great of future assets at this point, especially like Russell Westbrook. Um, but even Anthony Davis is like really taking a nosedive on his, on his uh, potential asset value or whatever you want to call it over these last like year and a half or so, just because we don't know if he's going to be able to stay on the court at all for any stretch for the rest of his career. Cause it's been just kind of ridiculous at this point, but it's just kind of like, it's scary for, the Lakers, I'm sure, to have LeBron being, what, 38? He's turning 38 this season in December, I want to say. And Anthony Davis isn't like a spring chicken anymore. So what's going to be left here in a few years? You're going to be left with nothing. Very poor team. And on top of that, you're not going to have any picks. So you're just going to have to retool every offseason by making moves on the margins with maybe trades and maybe like free agency signings here and there, you know, being LA, maybe they can attract a big time free agent, but that was really hard for them to do last time until LeBron finally came. So yeah, like there's that side of it too, of, you know, should we really move our like last two glimmers of hope for our franchise having a future after LeBron in order to maybe win another championship with him? That's the dilemma that the Lakers front office is currently facing. And um, I don't know if I have a lot of trust in them making the right decision, even though I, you know, I don't know if there is a right decision, so I guess they can't screw it up. But Rob Polinka seems to try to find a way to screw everything up. At least that's how I would feel about him if I was a Lakers fan. But yeah, that's all the stuff I have to talk about for the Lakers and Warriors. Let's get on to the third thing now. But the third thing I wanted to talk about was Victor Wenbenyama, who, for those that don't know, is the heavy favorite for the first overall pick in the 
2023 NBA draft, so next year's draft. He's 18 years old, out of France. His height has been something that has been um, reported in very different ways. <laughs> I've seen a lot of places saying he's 7'5". I think that's really just to get people's attention. Like, he might be 7'5". He looks, like, not even real when he's on the court. But my guess is he's probably going to be listed at, like, 7'3 in the NBA because they measure players without, like, their shoes and everything. But then, for some reason, like the combine, they measure them with shoes on. So players' heights and stuff in the draft is always a little bit bigger than what they're actually going to be listed at in the NBA, which I don't even understand why they do that like that. But like he might be listed at seven four, seven five in shoes, you know. But yeah, the first time I heard about this guy was like two years ago. I want to say, just listening to a podcast. I think it was Kevin O'Connor who talked about it. Uh, the first time I heard his name, Victor Wenbanyama just about, you know, looking forward to him being a draft prospect in a few years and him being like, at that point he was saying, and I, I actually heard after, after Kevin O'Connor talked about him, I heard him about him a lot of other places too, but they were saying, you know, he's probably going to be the best prospect out of everybody that's been coming up in this generation, like the past 10 years and that kind of stuff. And, you know, with it being a few years out, I didn't, think too much on it obviously because we just had to wait and see basically but yeah all the way up until now it's been just kind of slowly building ever since the last draft kind of happened it was like all right now it's time to look forward for victor Wenbanyama. um even while like that draft was happening this past one with uh paulo bancaro going number one chet holmgren going number two and jabari smith jr going number three people were saying just put victor Wenbanyama right now him at 17 in this draft, he's going number one over all those guys, which is pretty crazy to think about. But like shortly before the draft, I want to say just a few months before, there was a some sort of game that was played between some teams. I think it might have been like a national team type of game. But Holmgren was facing off against Winbenyama, which they are kind of rivals because they're like similar stature and everything. But when they played against each other, Winbenyama made Chet look like he was the one that was a year younger. Chet is like very, very tall. He's probably like seven foot, seven one, something like that. But Winbenyama made him look like not very tall at all. That's why it's kind of hard to tell what how tall he actually is. But it's weird. It's it's honestly, if you haven't seen any videos of this guy that I'm talking about, Victor Winbenyama, spelled W E M B A N Y A M A definitely go just watch some highlights you'll probably find the game that just happened recently or the couple games really that's happened recently that um that has made this a very very big topic of discussion right now and the reason why i'm talking about it right now basically is because it's been making the rounds like in the news cycle and stuff like that recently and yeah it was just kind of funny to witness it from you know my point of view of like you know, some of the things that I hear said about this guy, it feels like we should be talking about him a lot more. If like the things that are, people are saying about him are true of like, he's one of the best prospects of all time and you know, stuff like that, maybe we should actually be spending more time talking about him and paying attention to him. Um, and then all of a sudden he had like some ridiculous showcase in these games against Scoot Henderson's team, um, who by the way is the projected number two pick in this year's draft. And a lot of people say would be the number one pick in most draft classes. But yeah, after him having just monster performances 
people are talking about him like he's the second coming of I don't even know what. And that that's probably disrespectful to say it like that because it's like we've never seen anything like what this guy is before. Um, so it's not really the second coming of anything. You know, obviously while I'm watching him play, I'm reminded most of KD, which I don't like. Not that I don't like KD. I just mean it feels like KD is a very overused player comparison, if you know what I mean. Anybody that's like skinny that can kind of shoot and have perimeter skills, it's like, oh man, that guy really reminds me of KD, which I get to a certain extent. But watching this guy play, he looks like KD, but the size of Chris Tapp's Porzingis, which apparently this guy has an eight foot wingspan too. So that'll be interesting to see what he gets measured at in the NBA. Porzingis' wingspan is only 7'6". I say only, but this guy is, he is a specimen and he's only 18, meaning he can grow some more. I don't know if you want him to grow anymore at this point. I feel like it might be overkill. I would be really worried about his durability if he got any bigger. And I already am still worried about his durability. That's kind of why I want to start talking about this because I have some thoughts on like the discourse that's been going on with uh, Wemby or Victor or the alien is another nickname that apparently people are throwing around now. I don't know what we're going to end up calling him yet, but yeah, I have thoughts on it because I see what people are saying about, and this is a take that's been spreading across uh, NBA Twitter, NBA everything a lot the last couple of days, which is that Victor Wembanyama is the greatest prospect in the history of the NBA. And I have thoughts on this because I don't disagree with it entirely. Not a hundred percent. I don't think it's crazy to say, to be honest, even like, I think it's crazy to say, but it's also kind of not crazy to say if that makes any sense. Just watching him play. He literally, like I said before, looks like KD on offense, what he can do. And like, I guess I'm not 100% sure that all this, all these skills are going to translate to the NBA. Maybe he's just very, very hot recently in these, in these two showcase games and, you know what? But I'm, I'll push back on that, what I just said, because even the shots that he misses, even the plays where he doesn't score, I'm still like blown away by just, like he doesn't look real. How he moves, how he plays. He is seven foot three, like, you know, at least seven foot three. We'll just say that, but potentially like seven, five, but he moves literally like he is, he moves like Giannis. He moves like a guy who's six eleven who it's already jarring to see somebody that tall move the way they do. Giannis moves like he's 6'6 six, six or 6'5. Six, you know what I mean? But he's 6'11, so it's crazy. There's a couple other guys like that, like KD and like Ben Simmons and you know some other players. But then double that difference, height difference again. Like take him from 6'5 to 6'11, from 6'11 to 7'4. I didn't do any math there, but just stay with me, I guess. He has just really good fluidity moving. He takes guys off the dribble frequently and can score in isolation with ease. Like any shot in the book. He pulled up from like 30 plus feet and just drained a three-pointer in like kind of like a broken set. He has these crazy just like baseline turnarounds where he gets square. He's just so big. It's so weird to see somebody with those skills be that large because most guys that we see that big are like they lumber around they're like they, they get into the league and they have a place in the league just because they're so large that's like okay you have to 
take them seriously around the rim. Like they, so they cause things to kind of happen. They give you value at like putting pressure on the rim or whatever, but they can't really move. They're just kind of like you throw them the ball and they try to like get it in and they get a lot of rebounds and things like that. But this guy is that size, but he moves like a guard literally, which is insane. I think he's listed at 210 for weight. So that's, he's pretty skinny. I don't know how accurate that is though, because it's hard to get accurate listings for guys, especially overseas for some reason. But yeah, apparently he hasn't had any like injury concerns or injury history. As far as I know, at least I think I heard that he's been very, very clean as far as injuries go throughout his life so far. But the track record of guys that tall is very bad. Like once you get over seven one, seven two, in in that range, most of the time, you tend to not stay on the court very well. And in a lot of cases, you're like, you can't stay in the league because you have career altering injuries and stuff. Especially with the legs, Porzingis is an example of a guy who's just been, you know, his ceiling and his potential has never been even close to realized. I feel like because of injuries holding him back. Even Embiid, who isn't that tall, but he's, I mean, he's up there. He's probably like seven foot, seven one. Ralph Sampson, I think was seven four, I want to say. Uh, you know, Manute Bowl. I could go through a lot, but the fact of the matter is, like, all of them have a really bad um, history, like, every single one, basically, that I can think of. The only one would be Kareem, to be honest. Um, and he's seven two. At least that's what he's always been listed at. I, I heard on Bill Simmons' podcast recently that he called him seven four. I think Bill gets a little crazy with the height sometimes because he calls Embiid 7-3 sometimes, I hear too, which I don't think so. But yeah, Kareem had a really healthy career for the most part, and, and he was able to have like some of the best longevity that we've ever seen, like the best really outside of LeBron. So I guess you know there is an example of it working, but the thing is, what I'm trying to get into with this, kind of like the main overarching point that I want to nail down is... The argument of Wenbenyama versus LeBron, because everybody's saying that Wenbenyama is the new greatest prospect in the history of basketball, um, and the previous one of that would have to be probably LeBron. I think most people would agree with that, and so most people are saying right now that Wemby is even a better prospect than LeBron was in high school. And then I hear the pushback against that from guys like Ryan Rossillo and you know a couple other people I've heard that say, no, you can't put him over LeBron. That's crazy because just look at this guy's height and body and there's just too many injury concerns with him to be able to say that he's a better draft prospect than LeBron, who was like the perfect body for the NBA. Like no you know, negative concerns about how his body would hold up. That was like never in question. Because, you know, he was always compared to, like, a cross between Magic and Jordan and Carl Malone, really, uh, as far as, like, play style and Carl Malone's body type, really. So, like, he was pretty surefire as far as, like, prospects go. But the thing I wanted to talk about here was something that I don't feel like I've heard anybody else say. All I've heard so far has been Team Wemby or Team LeBron, basically, in, in this debate. But I think that you really could say both just depending on the way you're talking about it. Because I think Wenbenyama has a pretty strong argument for the higher ceiling as a prospect. Wenbenyama might be the highest ceiling that we've ever seen before. I think that's honestly kind of fair to say. 
what Wembenyama can be ultimately in a perfect situation, I guess, or in a best case scenario, is the best that we've ever seen before. But he has a much lower floor than a prospect like LeBron had because obviously of the body concerns. So in a draft, if you're doing like LeBron in high school in 2003 and Victor Wembanyama in 2023, both those guys are in a draft together. Who's going number one? I honestly think it really depends on the team who has the pick. And like the debate there would be Wembanyama is the more like upside pick. He is the higher ceiling. Uh, LeBron is like not too far behind him. Like he has a very, very high ceiling as well, but he's a much more like surefire thing. So I feel, I feel like LeBron would probably, no, it really depends. It depends on who, who has the pick. Cause some people really, really value that asset ceiling type of thing over the floor. Like they really value the boom over the bust. You know what I mean? Like they really send it. Some people are more conservative with it, go the other way around. So it's like, it's like take your pick, but I think there's definitely an argument to be made that Victor Wembanyama is the best draft prospect the NBA has ever seen. Oh, I, I didn't even mention before. I kept saying, like, I kept getting to my note of he's KD on offense and then not getting to the rest of his game. But, like, my comparison would be, honestly, while watching him, like, even though it feels ridiculous, um, it feels like I'm watching KD on offense, and maybe you could throw Giannis in there too a little bit on offense. No, I'll take him out. I'll just throw KD in there because Giannis has way more of like a motor and ferocity that I don't think we've really seen as much from Wemby yet. But yeah, KD on offense and Porzingis' body. But then on defense, he's like a mix between Gobert and Giannis. So you're talking about like maybe the best offensive player and defensive player ever. Like if he was only an offensive player, he would be the best offensive player ever. <laughs> And if you're only looking at his defense, he'd be the best defensive player ever. If I had to guess, honestly, I think we're all just getting really worked up with the, all this hype. He's probably not going to be that. Like, just I'm just going out on a limb and saying that it's probably the safer bet to say that he's not going to be the best um, offensive and defensive player of all time. But uh, like the fact that that's um, something that you can say or that you can uh, project for a player is pretty unbelievable. So I think that's really just where this should be left, I guess. But as far as how this affects the series that we're going through, uh, doing these preseason predictions, like I had that as a factor a little bit before with uh, choosing these teams' records, like the teams that are way at the bottom. I mean, Spurs, that's how I've been feeling this whole time with Isaiah Roba's situation, how I'm like, you know, maybe they're going to be a competitive team, but it really, really, from the personnel standpoint, seems like they're just going to completely tank the season and, you know, go all out for Victor Wenbanyama in the lottery. So maybe that is happening. I don't know. I decided to just put their over-under or uh, my reasonable prediction at like 27, um, which I'm feeling like should probably be a little bit lower now. I want to pull it down because I do feel like there's going to be a race to the bottom that we see in this year's season. I don't know if we'll see another team with less than 10 wins like that uh, Philly team from 20, whatever, 2016, 2015, something like that. Actually, I think a little bit before that. Anyways, like, I think they only won like nine games. I think the Bobcats only won like nine games one time. Like maybe we see that. I don't know. 
I put the Houston Rockets floor at like 10 wins earlier a couple episodes ago. Maybe it should be like eight. I don't know. But yeah, so that's just been something that I've been looking back over now, especially now that, you know, everybody's on this hype train with Wembenyama. I'm like, maybe I should make him a little bit more of a variable with this. Like I, I already was, like I said, thinking about it, but I'm questioning if I was giving it enough credit, if that makes any sense. Giving it enough weight, I guess. But yeah, without further ado, let's get into this actual episode. I mean, this stuff that I've been talking about at the beginning is part of the episode, of course. I'm sure there's going to be people that would rather listen to this than the rest. So, you know, I guess there's that. But let's just go on through the Northwest Division now. And we're going to start off with the Denver Nuggets. Um, so we're doing a little bit of Nuggets corner here today. So the Nuggets record last year was 48-34, and 34, which was the sixth seed in the Western Conference, uh, even though Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. were both injured the entire season. So we were without our second and third best players. Jokic won his second straight MVP, partially because of how competitive the Nuggets still were, given the circumstances. So, you know, hopefully we're in the makings of a really good season this year. Part of me really wants to give the Nuggets the highest reasonable prediction. Like, I, I really want to. But it doesn't seem like everybody else who in terms of like projecting this season and, and talking about it, like I haven't heard that a whole lot other places. Like I haven't looked at any over-unders at all so far. I've heard people reference them on podcasts, but I've been making sure not to look at any, any, you know, win total over-unders for this season because I want my predictions to be kind of absent of that influence. And then after I have all my predictions solidified, then I want to kind of go look at the over-unders and maybe even make some bets. If their line is somewhere that I feel like, you know, my reasonable prediction is very different than it is, then I'll probably put a bet on it. Who knows? We'll see. But I really haven't heard a lot of people bring up the Denver Nuggets in that conversation of like the best team in the league this year. They're always kind of around like the fifth or sixth team that people rattle off. So I don't know. There's part of me that feels like I'm just being biased and I don't want to go all out, give them super high reasonable prediction. I don't know if I didn't hold back at all. Maybe my reasonable prediction would be something like 55, 56 wins. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know why I started going into that right now because uh, I haven't got to that point yet in our discussion of the team. So I don't want to give you my reasonable prediction yet. So first, let's talk about key losses, which there aren't like a whole lot that I'm really worried about. Like we lost Barton, we lost Morris, Will Barton and Monte Morris, that is, which definitely if we just lost them. And that was all the context we had. Like, obviously, I would be worried about the season. But um, you'll see why in a second why I'm not too worried. Austin Rivers was another guy we lost, which that honestly is the one I probably care the most about. I don't know why we lost him exactly if we just didn't re-sign him. Um, I know that he's on the Wolves now, which we'll talk about in a second. But DeMarcus Cousins also is a key loss I have on here, really playing like the backup center role towards the latter half of last season. Honestly, he had some pretty big moments doing that for us. And then Faku Campasso, who's been kind of a roller coaster uh, of a player to be a fan of or to be on my team, you know, that I'm cheering on. I tend to really like Faku, but I also understand why a lot of people didn't like him with the team. He's just such an interesting combination of, of skills. And he's only like 5'8", 
and he makes some pretty crazy decisions sometimes like he like i don't know shots that he decides to take or things that he does sometimes can really seem like you know really bad really damaging to us but then also he goes out and makes some crazy plays sometimes and i don't know that's what i am going to call it, just like a roller coaster ride of a player obviously probably not somebody that's going to be in the rotation on a championship level team in the nba just mainly because of his size and limited athleticism and you know stuff like that so yeah marcus howard was the other guy that we lost i think that's basically everybody yeah key additions i have jamal murray in here obviously for health coming back after missing all of last year and the last quarter or you know he got injured in april of 2020 is that true 2020 no 2021 yeah so he got injured in april of 2021 missed all of the 2021 playoffs and then the whole 2022 season and now he's coming back for the 2023 season he had a torn acl if i didn't already say that mpj coming back he had a back thing last year i think he had surgery on it so both those guys back in the fold hopefully can be great like ever since we made that aaron gordon trade right before jamal got hurt it's like eight games before jamal got hurt we were undefeated those eight games and we looked really, really good. Our plus minus was like by far the best offensive rating, stuff like that. Like advanced analytics was just off the charts. So I'm excited to see that lineup again. Obviously, we won't have Barton in there, but not too worried about that. And I honestly kind of like KCP plugged in there instead, who that's next on my list of key additions. Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who we got in a trade from the Wizards. So we acquired him as well as Ish Smith from the Wizards. Uh, in exchange for Will Barton and Monte Morris. KCP is just going to be a really good 3 and D guard for us, 3 and D small wing. I think he's like 6'5". So like so in defensive reasonings, like he, he fills that Barton spot and does a much better job on defense probably than Barton ever did. So not to say Barton was like a bad defender, but KCP is like a really, really solid defender. And then we got Bruce Brown, who's going to be another guy playing that same type of role on defense. Offensively, he'll probably not be as much of like the spot up three guy uh, as KCP is, obviously. Um, he might extend to the corners a little bit, as we saw uh, in Brooklyn. They did quite a bit, but obviously going to be more of like a cutter, just being really active off ball, getting open, getting close to the basket, putting the ball in the hole. You know, he's got a nice little floater game that he can go to in the short roll. Since he's a, a lifetime guard in that short roll, he can very easily play make out to the corners and stuff like that, dump off to a guy in the dunker spot in those situations like he's going to be a useful player especially next to Nicole Jokic Barton used to be the guy Gary Harris too both of them back when Jokic was first kind of coming into his own those guys were so active and so fun off ball like just cutting all over the place and getting open and Jokic just hitting them with dimes getting easy points like that but both those guys got a little bit more I don't know what to call it a little bit more lazy a little bit less active as the years went along I feel like so hopefully we get a throwback to that type of style with Bruce Brown. Aaron Gordon kind of brought that too when he first came over in the trade last year or two years ago now. I feel like he also has kind of gotten, I don't know if it's like they are just so excited to be playing with a guy like Jokic at first that they're so willing to just really move without the ball a lot. Like I'm not saying Aaron Gordon doesn't still do that. He definitely does, but I, I just feel like it wasn't quite as active as he was when he first came but maybe I shouldn't blame him for that because with our next two guys out, like Jamal and MPJ both out, he had to shoulder a very different kind of burden, like being basically our second option on offense in a lot of stretches. 
that does kind of make sense. So hopefully he does kind of go back to that role as well on offense, more of the off-ball active type of role now that we have guys to fill the role of uh, being a secondary creator, secondary operator, that type of thing. But yeah, really excited to have Bruce Brown on a good deal too. Um, I think it was only two years, 13 million. Then we got Christian Brown in the draft out of Kansas with the 21st pick, another 3 and D guy. I'll be excited to see him. He might get some run, I don't know, this season. Probably not when we're fully healthy as much. I don't think he'll probably break the rotation. It kind of depends on him and Dave on Reed, to be honest, but we'll get to that in a second. Then Peyton Watson, we also got in the draft at the 30th pick out of UCLA. I don't know if he has like a super reliable jump shot quite yet, but defensively speaking, he should be a nice prospect at a good 6'8", pretty versatile. Ish Smith, I already kind of brought him up before, but I have him on here from the uh, trade with the Wizards. And then I also have Flatco Chanchar on here for health because he actually, there was a portion of the season where we were, a lot of guys were going down and we kind of needed him for an actual bench role, you know, coming in and and uh, soaking up those minutes. And he was playing really well. It was looking really good, really exciting. And then he broke his nose, I want to say, or wrist. I don't remember. He did something to where he was out for an extended period of time and, you know, never really kind of got back into the rotation as much throughout the season because after he came back, we had some other guys back too. He's going to be back fully healthy. It's just nice to have him deeper on the bench. The last couple of years now, I've kind of wanted to see more of him. So we'll see if we get some of that for stretches. Obviously don't want to have stretches where we are without guys or undermanned, but it's nice to have him. And then DeAndre Jordan was the other acquisition that we had this offseason, which if you've listened to one of the first podcasts we did this offseason, you'll know how I feel about that one. Wasn't a big fan of it. But yeah, as far as the rotation goes, we got Jamal at the one for the starting lineup. Kentavious Caldwell Pope at the two, probably. Um, I think definitely, actually. Yeah, so Jamal, KCP, and then Aaron Gordon at the three, Michael Porter Jr. at the four. Those are really interchangeable, but I like AG guarding threes more on defense and MPJ being more of a rim protector on the weak side. And then Nikola Jokic, obviously, at the five. That lineup is just beautiful. I love that. Lots of shooting, lots of scoring, lots of passing, lots of just lots of skills across the whole lineup there. Really nice to see. And all of them are guys that can play off ball, even Jokic, honestly. I love seeing Jokic when he, people aren't expecting him to be the one who's like coming off of screens and cutting and diving into the basket and stuff. Love to see when he breaks that out. Yeah, and then after that, we have Bones coming off bench, Bones Highland. Um, I think he'll probably be like backup point guard unless Malone uses Ishmith for that role. So that's really going to depend on if Ishmith is in the rotation or not is if he's like the backup point guard and they move Bones to like the two, basically. But like if I was the coach, if I was Michael Malone, I would probably just do Bones as the backup point guard and see how it goes, obviously. And then Bruce Brown be like a backup two, backup three, really whatever. He, I don't even know what to call him as a position, but probably list him somewhere in the backcourt, a uh, small wing. And then Zeke Naji probably went in there as a big wing. Davon Reed. He's another guy that I think can come in and play a really good role as a wing. Uh, Jeff Green might be our backup center, to be honest, unless we use DeAndre Jordan, which I very much hope that we do not because I think he's doesn't have anything left in the tank at this point just from seeing him at his last few stops um, in Philly and Brooklyn and and really the Knicks, to be honest, and maybe even the Mavs when he first got to the Mavs. I think he's been really done ever since he left the Clippers. Yeah, so hopefully we do like 
Jeff Green or Zeke Naji as kind of like the backup center, um, which I'm fine with. It's kind of a small ball thing, but those guys are big, and there's a lot of other teams that use those kinds of lineups, so it, I don't think it will come in to play a whole lot as like a major thing. I think both those guys can be good role men. Maybe AG, maybe Aaron Gordon will kind of be our backup center in a way, at least offensively speaking, as like the role man. I think that would be a good roller or um, what's it called? Position for him to fill. I don't know what I'm trying to look for. I felt weird saying role, R-O-L-E, after I had just said like role man as like pick and roll. But yeah, just in our bench units, having like Bones or Jamal as kind of like, you know, the ball handler and Aaron Gordon as the screener, roller, that kind of thing. I think that would be a good kind of like center of the offense for the backup units because the problem the past couple of years has been not having an identity or like an offensive game plan in our bench units because we just go like with an all wing lineup. The worst was when we had Paul Millsap and Michael Green as the two bigs, then like Bones and whoever else, you know, in the backcourt, and then just like a three and D wing. And it was like, okay, we have one guy who's kind of like a bucket getter. So that's our entire offense is we're just going to like kind of pass around the ball, like drive and kick with uh, some guys like Jamichael and, and Paul Millsap, who neither of them can beat their man at all. It didn't make any sense because there wasn't like they had shooting out there, but there was nothing going on on offense to pull guys off of the shooters in order to create that kick out situation. You know, because like they were doing drive and kick, but nobody could really beat their man other than Bones Highland, really. It's just there wasn't a lot to do. There wasn't any rim pressure. Teams, I don't think, were that scared of letting Bones Highland kind of drive and then just kind of being able to simply help and swallow that up at the rim because he's like a small guard. But having like a big role man, like when he had JaVale McGee, but didn't play him in the second unit for some reason, that's when I always wanted, instead of putting... Paul Millsap and Jamichael Green out there together. I wanted JaVale McGee to be in there so he could be a threat as like a lob man to put pressure on the rim. And that stretches the defense. Mason Plumley, you know, would be the other one. He's the last one that we really had that we used in that way uh, with the second unit. So yeah, maybe stagger the minutes with Gordon and Jokic, but they play so well together too. So I don't know, there'd be different ways to go about it, but I think that would be a good thing to look at is having Gordon kind of be in for a lot of those minutes where Jokic is off. So the offense kind of works that way. Because what we did last year with Boogie, like DeMarcus Cousins being our backup center, was really nice. I, I was a big fan of that because even though he doesn't provide like the thing that I'm talking about, which is like just simply a lob threat, like a somebody put pressure on the rim, he allowed us to run like a very dumbed down, but still somewhat effective version of our what our starting lineup does on offense. Because... DeMarcus Cousins is a pretty skillful like playmaker and ball handler and you know he can stretch the floor a little bit on offense and he can you know he can definitely score in the post as well he has a back to the basket game so he's like a he could play the Jokic role a little bit you know what I mean you could just plug him into the Jokic spot and play the same exact way you would with Jokic in the game and you could actually generate some points yeah now DeMarcus Cousins is gone at least I'm pretty sure I don't know where he is I've been going through all the rosters in the West so far. Spot track, I haven't seen his name anywhere. But he's not currently on the Nuggets uh, spot track data. So I, I don't think he's on the team. And uh, that would make more sense to why we have DeAndre Jordan now. Um, but I don't want, yeah. Him in his heyday was a lob threat. Him now is, I don't know if we really want to go with that. So I'd rather not have him play. Maybe, like, we can try it if he does look good. 
then yeah, I'm all for it. But where I'm leaning right now, where I feel like it would go is let's just do that thing. I was just talking about with Aaron Gordon or maybe Jeff Green could try that role too. Like the main guys that I feel like are pretty much locks for the rotation is obviously Jamal, MPJ, Jokic, KCP, uh, Aaron Gordon. So that's five. And then I'd say Bones and Bruce Brown. I'd say the eighth guy is probably Zeke or Jeff Green, one of those two. So that's nine. And if I had to just take a stab in the dark at who would be 10, if we go 10 deep, which I think we probably will, I'm going to say Davon Reed would be that 10th guy. But yeah, then if there's ever any injuries or anything like that, we have like copy and paste those skill sets of those guys on our bench to other guys like Christian Brown and Vlatko Chanchar. So yeah, we have guys to come in and fill in when needed. I would have felt a little bit more comfortable if we would have kept Austin Rivers. I think he would make this bench like just a lot more good. <laughs> he would make me feel a lot better about this bench that we have. But yeah, I, I feel good though overall. So the ceiling I have for the Denver Nuggets this upcoming season is 63 and 19. And then the floor I have him at is 45 and 37, which I kind of like I was thinking maybe 46 even. I don't know. I have a really hard time seeing us win less than this, even if we have a lot of injuries. Because like Jokic is super durable. Like I'm not saying it's impossible for him to miss like a big part of the season, but it's very unlikely. So like if that happened, maybe we'd drop below this, I guess. Probably would. But like I'm just saying, in worst case scenario for this team, I feel like it's probably like worst case that's actually somewhat within play is kind of what I mean. And that's maybe Jamal does not like come back to his former self and he's he gets injured again. Same thing with MPJ. Like he, it's just irrecoverable. I don't know. Those guys just aren't coming back into form and can't get healthy. And then we're just kind of stuck with the same problem we had last year. But I think maybe a little bit better off with the guys around Jokic now, I think is a little bit better, maybe a tiny bit. And just, you know, younger guys getting better, like Bones, obviously coming in and getting better. So, yeah, I, I think a floor for 45 wins is pretty good for that. And reasonable prediction, I have him at 53 and 29 as the second seed in the West behind the Warriors. So now on to the Minnesota Timberwolves, whose record last year was 46 and 36, which was good for the seventh seed in the West. And they actually did make it in there as the seventh seed after the play-in tournament, um, where they beat the Clippers in the first game of that. As some of you might remember, Patrick Beverly jumping up on the scores table, going crazy. They have a pretty drastically different team around their main two guys, Ant Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns, coming in this year. So as far as key losses for the Wolves, I have Patrick Beverly, Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley. Those are probably the main three. All those guys were in the Gobert trade, uh, which leads us right into key additions. Uh, I'm sorry if I missed any key losses. I think there might be another person, but those were the first three that came to my mind. But key additions, they got Gobert, obviously, in that trade from Utah. They also got Kyle Anderson from Memphis, which I think is a really underrated pickup. You got Austin Rivers from Denver, like I said before, and Bryn Forbes for that matter. And also, while we're at it with Nuggets, PJ Dozier is at least signed to like their training camp squad. I don't know if he's on the final roster quite yet, but if he can make it back to anything before you know his ACL injury, then I think he's going to be a, a piece on this roster for sure. 
you know, for the Nuggets, he was a really underrated player, being a good defender, guy who could also just add some energy to the offense. But yeah, Tim Conley being the new GM of the Minnesota Timberwolves. This is his first full offseason being the Timberwolves GM after being the GM of the Nuggets for uh, quite a while. I think ever since like 2013 range, ever since Masai Ujiri left, I think. So, you know, he drafted Gobert also. Um, Gobert was drafted by Tim Conley in the Nuggets before being traded to Utah. So there's just a lot of players, you know, that are popping up that you can tell that, you know, Tim Conley has an eye for those guys. They also drafted Wendell Moore Jr. with the 26th pick out of Duke. I think Tarian Prince can be on here as a key addition for health because he missed a good portion of last season. I don't, I don't know if he was quite back yet by the playoffs. I think he was technically available, but um, he hadn't been like, you know, reconditioned, kind of worked back in quite yet. So I think he'll be a good, almost like a good addition for this upcoming season, being more healthy um, as, you know, 3 and D wing. They have Eric Paschal on a two-way contract. And then, like I said, they have Dozier on the training camp roster. There were a couple other names on there that really stuck out to me, and that was CJ Ellaby and Luca Garza. So far, it looks like Tim Connolly's doing a really good job of gathering up some good players, in my opinion. So for the rotation for the Wolves this year, I think the starting five will probably be D'Angelo Russell at the one, Anthony Edwards at the two, uh, Tarian Prince at the three, Cat at the four, and Gobert at the five. So they have a really nice big lineup. Um, at the three spot, I put Tarian Prince, like I said, but you know I could really see Jaden McDaniel starting at that spot too, or maybe even Kyle Anderson. I feel like he'll probably come off the bench though. But then they could also slide Anthony Edwards down to the three and start with a backcourt of D'Angelo Russell and Jalen Noel or something along those lines. So they have, you know, some options on where to take it. You know, obviously this team has got some really good bigs with Cat and Gobert being two of the top four or five bigs in the NBA. And then they got a really solid backup big with Nas Reed, um, probably one of the better backups in the NBA. So yeah, they've got a really solid front court and some really good big wings. Like I said, with Tarian Prince, Jade McDaniels, Kyle Anderson, maybe even Wendell Moore, if he comes along well this in this rookie season. Jordan McLaughlin will be a really solid backup point guard for them. Once again, Brent Forbes as a shooter off the bench, Austin Rivers can kind of come in and do whatever they need at like the really the one through three spot. PJ Dozier, really similar thing if he kind of gets back into form this year. And we're entering another year of Chris Finch being the head coach here in Minnesota, which has gone really, really well ever since he started there. To continue the Nuggets parallel, Chris Finch was an assistant with the Nuggets for a number of years, and he was a big part of implementing the offense that we currently kind of use with with Jokic, putting the ball in his hands, using a lot of dribble handoff sequences, guards just kind of cutting around him, moving and playing off him. So it'll be interesting to see what the Wolves are going to be capable of this upcoming season. I put their ceiling at 55 and 27, which I feel like I might need to even put a little higher if I move it at all. I'd be surprised, I guess, if they do win more than that. But I don't know. It's kind of hard to hard to gauge. So I don't know. I'm going to leave it here at 55 and 27. But I don't know. I could maybe even go up as high as 57 wins, somewhere like that. But as far as the floor, I put them at 39 and 43. And that's just really if this Gobert and Cat pairing doesn't work at all. And uh, Anthony Edwards is kind of just stagnant in his development and not really develop into that 
number one option, really solid score and team engine that he's been looking like he's going to become now. But for my reasonable prediction for the Wolves, I have him at 47 and 35. So now onto the Oklahoma City Thunder. The record last year was 24 and 58, which was the 14th best record in the West. As far as key losses go, this was kind of hard to do because I don't really I, like I just mean this section of key losses and key additions because I don't know. They've been a tanking team, obviously, the past few years. So it's really not totally about the key losses and key additions all too much. It's really if they are going to be playing those players or not. As far as key losses, they lost Isaiah Roby and Derek Favors, uh, which I don't know where Favors went, to be honest. I'll have to find that out eventually, I guess, as I go through the East, I'm guessing, because I haven't seen him on any rosters in the West. But he's not on the Thunder anymore. So Roby and Favors, I have as the two main key losses. Key additions, I have Chet Holmgren, obviously, even though you know he's going to be sitting out this rookie season after um, a knee injury, I believe. Right? It was a knee. So, something with his legs, I'm pretty sure. He suffered an injury in the offseason in a pro-am event actually defending a layup on LeBron James. But he was the second pick out of Gonzaga in this year's draft. And then other key additions, guys they got in the draft, Usman Diang, they got with the 11th pick from the New Zealand Breakers in the NBL over in the Oceanic League. Uh, Jalen Williams with the 12th pick out of Santa Clara. And then another Jalen Williams, but this one's spelled J-A-Y-L-I-N instead of J-A-L-E-N. Uh, they got him with a 34th pick out of Arkansas. So pretty fun that they have two guys with the same exact name, just spelled different with the first name. Obviously, head coach still Mark Dagnall, GM still Sam Presti. As far as their rotations this year, like I'm just going to put it in as they're using like their most uh, valued assets or like guys that they uh, want to develop the most slash want to have in their future the most if that makes sense. So it's not necessarily the best players in all cases, but at starting point guard, I'm going to put Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And at the two, I have Josh Giddy as a three, Lou Dort. And at the four, I think this could go a number of ways, but I would probably lean. Maybe they use that new lottery pick this year that I was just talking about, Usman Jiang from the New Zealand Breakers. They might start him at the four. If not, then it could be Darius Baisley or Alexei Pokashevsky. Or it even could be who I have starting at center. Um, you know, they might use him at the four instead. But I, I feel like they'll probably use him at center, I'm guessing, to start. And that will be Jeremiah Robinson Earl. As far as bench guys that they have at the one, they got Trey Mann and Trey Burke. Trey Mann, obviously, the more developmental pick there. So I have him as the second string. And then at the two, they have Jalen Williams, uh, J-A-L-E-N, guy they got at the 12th pick. And then Aaron Wiggins as well. And then at small forward, they got Kenrich Williams, David Nwaba, Sterling Brown. But, you know, Kenrich Williams has definitely been their more their go-to guy in the rotation the past few years. So I think we'll definitely see him in the rotation still. Unless they are wanting to tank this season, then I think we might see him moved, to be honest, to a contender. Because uh, I think he's a guy that can really be a solid role player on a good team in the NBA. And then, like I said, with power forward, could be Baisley and Pokashevsky. And then at center, I have their other rookie, Jalen Williams from Arkansas, and then Marquise Chris and Mike Muscala 
you know, I, I'm not going to do any predictions for like actual guys in the rotation uh, like I have for most other teams, just because with these bottom teams, I can't tell if they're going to try the season or not, you know, especially with the whole Victor Wenbenyama sweepstakes going on. I have no, I don't want to try to predict what players they'll be like giving minutes and what players they won't be. So yeah, those are all the guys that I felt like were worth mentioning as guys we might see, I guess, though. So for the ceiling for the Oklahoma City Thunder, I have them at 31 and 51. And their floor, I got 15 and 67, which, like I said before, with the Wemby stuff, maybe it'll be even lower than this. I don't know. But I, I decided to put them at 15 because that is very bad. You know, the worst record in the league last year was 20 wins with Houston. So. Uh, but for a reasonable prediction, I put them at 24 and 58, which is actually the same exact record they had last year, which was unintentional, but I don't know, just kind of feels right. Then on to the Portland Trail Blazers, whose record last year was 27 and 55, which was the 13th best record in the West. So I didn't really have key losses for the Portland Trail Blazers. There's probably a few if I really dove into it, but... You know, what's more important for this team this year is like their key additions. I don't think they really lost anybody that would be getting minutes still with the guys that they have coming back or have added this offseason. One of those guys being Damian Lillard, obviously coming back after missing almost all of last season with a abdomen injury. I think that he had surgery on. And then they got Jeremy Grant this offseason, which is a huge ad for the Portland Trailblazers. I think it really helps them out a lot. And they got Shaden Sharp in the draft, who I really like the upside for. They got him at the seventh pick out of Kentucky. They signed Gary Payton the second to a pretty big deal. He was three years, twenty-eight million. And then they drafted Jabari Walker with the fifty-seventh pick out of Colorado. Uh, I, so I don't know if he's really going to be in the rotation or anything. Probably not. Would be a good bet, but just thought I'd mention him. We're going into the second season of Chauncey Billups as a head coach, so we'll see what improvements get made there you know he didn't really have a good roster to work with last year but so we'll see for the starting lineup i have damian lillard and anthony simons as the backcourt and then josh hart at the three jeremy grant at the four and yusuf nurkic at the five which i think is going to be a pretty decent starting five and then as far as like the guys coming straight off the bench that will be used a lot i think gary payton the second is going to be one of those main guys off the bench Probably there's six man, honestly, as I'm skimming through the rest of these guys. Uh, Shaden Sharp will probably be one of those next guys after GP2, maybe even before if you know he really does come out hot and playing really well. But I'm pretty sure they'll probably start the season with him coming off the bench. And then Nasir Little as another wing coming off the bench. Justice Winslow we might see some time being like a versatile defensive player, probably playing him at like the four spot. Drew Eubanks, I feel like, will probably be their backup center. Or if not, then maybe a young guy like Greg Brown the third will fill that spot. But yeah, another guy, I guess, that might break into the rotation at points might be Keon Johnson. We'll see. This team isn't really deep. Like, they have pretty solid top six, seven guys, but maybe eight. Like, it kind of drops off after that. So for the ceiling, I have them at 48 and 34, which I don't think that will happen. But... I decided to put that as their ceiling because maybe, I don't know. Their floor I have them at is 30 and 52. And reasonable prediction 
is 39 and 43. So I think, I think really pretty confident they're going to probably end up somewhere in the range of 35, 36 wins to about 43, 44 wins, you know, somewhere in that range. I'd be surprised if they fall outside of that. So maybe I should have done that as they're sitting in floor, but I guess I decided to try to make it like really, you know, maybe possible type of situation. So yeah, that's my prediction on the Portland Trailblazers, 39 and 43 as the 11th seed, I think. No, 10. Yeah, 10th seed in the Western Conference, uh, right in between the Lakers and the Sacramento Kings. So that brings us to the last team in the Northwest Division. That's the Utah Jazz, um, whose record last year was 48 and 34. They were the fifth seed in the West. They have a lot of turnover in this offseason coming into this year. You know, starting with head coach stepping away, Quinn Snyder, who is their head coach of like eight years, I want to say, something like that. And so they replaced him with Will Hardy, who's the new youngest coach in the NBA um, from the Boston Celtics. He was the head assistant there, which makes sense because Danny Ainge is now the new GM in Utah. um, And he was the GM in Boston for like 20 years. And then key losses, I have Rudy Gobert, obviously, Donovan Mitchell, Bojan Bogdanovic, and Royce O'Neal. I think those are all the guys that they've really shipped off so far. The main guys, key additions, I have uh, Colin Sexton, Jared Vanderbilt, Laurie Markinen, Taylor Horton Tucker, Ochai Abaji, Malik Beasley, and Walker Kessler, who was the 22nd pick out of Auburn, who I should have probably mentioned the pick for Ochai Abaji too, that uh, he was the 14th pick out of Kansas. Both those guys, they didn't draft though. They they got Abaji from Cleveland Cavaliers, and they got Walker Kessler from the Wolves. Then as far as other key additions, which they'd still have more because obviously they trade away big time players. They're, they're going to get a lot of uh, role players back. So so they also have Leandro Balmaro, Kelly Olenek, Sabin Lee, and a guy named Simone Fontecchio. Si- Simon, Simon Fontecchio, Fontecchio. I have no idea. Never heard of him before, but... He's like a 26-year-old out of Italy that they picked up. I'm not sure for what reason, to be honest, other than maybe he was they drafted him a while ago and he was just a um, uh, Euro stash player. Simone Fontecchio, I guess is how you pronounce it. Just found a video of him saying his own name. Simone Fontecchio. But yeah, he's. I think he's like 6'8", uh, 6'9", something like that. Big wing. Yeah, so... If people are wondering why did the Utah Jazz trade all their best players, that's really just because, I mean, like mainly it's they have a new GM. That's a new ownership. Like that's answer number one. Like that doesn't mean that just because they got those guys or got, you know, new owner and new GM, that means they have to blow it up. But it's I guess it's that combined with the fact that uh, they've been struggling to get over the hump every year even though they've had one of the best teams of the regular season year after year, they tend to bow out early in the playoffs. And it's kind of been like a roster fit issue that they've found themselves in with building their team defense around Rudy Gobert. Uh, it's something that in the playoffs teams can adjust and kind of game plan against and it works pretty well. So, you know, just had some changes that need to be made, but yeah, I guess it's, it's not like that, Uh, It's the same guy who orchestrated and put together this whole roster for the past, you know, five, six years, 10 years, 
um, who's now deciding to do this is that the Jazz just within the past like year and a half, two years, got sold to a new owner, and uh, that new owner brought in his very good friend Danny Ainge, who is the GM of the Celtics. So you know, new ownership, new general manager, uh, just decided to make some changes, blow up the roster, basically rebuild their own vision for what they have for the team. So that's, I guess, like the main reason why the best explanation to why this was done. And also because uh, Victor Wenbenyama is going to be the prize in this year's draft. And really this draft is just overall a good, really good draft to tank for. So that's definitely what they're going to be doing this upcoming season. They might play Colin Sexton a lot, let him generate a lot of baskets, just kind of go off for like 27 a game and win like 17 games, you know, something like that. I don't know. So I'm, I don't know, even know if I want to do like a whole rotation thing with this team either. Um, but as I'm going through this, I'm realizing that the Northwest division is really bad just because they have three teams that or two teams that are probably tanking this year. And one team that is just like, I think they'll try to be competitive, but they just don't have enough compared to the crazy amount of competition that's in the Western Conference. That's the Portland Trailblazers that I'm talking about there. So it's really just this division is like Denver and Minnesota, if we're being honest, like of the teams that are, they have aspirations this year, like for playoff aspirations. Well, okay. The Portland Trailblazers are trying to make the playoffs. I don't think they will ultimately. And if they do, they're going to be like a seven, eight seed and get knocked out in the first round. Minnesota's ceiling is definitely higher than that. They could be like the third seed, second seed, something like that at their ceiling. And when, maybe even get all the way to the conference finals if we see a pretty crazy run from them. The Denver Nuggets, I think their ceiling for the playoffs this year is winning a championship. I don't think that's crazy to say. So, yeah, honestly, pretty happy as a Nuggets fan that this is the division that we have going into this season. This is the competition that we're going to have the most frequently, at least. Obviously, other than the Timberwolves, I, I feel like we might lose a se our season series against the Timberwolves. Uh, just because they're going to be a pretty tough matchup, but we'll see. But yeah, as for my record predictions for the Utah Jazz, though, um, I guess I'll mention like players that we might see moved still, like Mike Conley is still on their team. I think he's going to get moved. Uh, Jordan Clarkson will probably get moved at some point. Maybe even Malik Beasley and Larry Markinen. Rudy Gay, I think will just probably be a buyout. I don't think he's going to get traded unless it's like, a protected second round pick or something. But yeah. I don't know. The rest of their guys are still young. Probably want to see develop more. Like Jared Butler, uh, Nikhil Alexander Walker, Taylor Horton Tucker, Ochai Abaji, Malik Beasley is is I already mentioned him for he could go either way, you know. And and Markinen. They're both kind of like kind of young, but also kind of not. Um, but Leandro Balmaro, Jared Vanderbilt, Walker Kessler. So, yeah, but they also have Kelly Olenek on their team. He's another guy who might get moved. Um, I forgot to mention him. Uh, yeah, but for the ceiling on this team, I put him at 28 and 54, which I feel like is even kind of generous, to be honest, but still not good at all. So I'm fine with leaving it there. The floor I put him at is 10 and 72. And um, the reasonable prediction I put him at is 22 and 60. So, yeah, that'll be my thing on the Utah Jazz. So yeah, that will be it for today's episode. We're all done with the Northwest Division and therefore the Western Conference. 
So tune in for next episode when we're going through the east. We'll probably continue going backwards. So we'll start in the southeast division with the Miami Heat, the Orlando Magic, the Atlanta Hawks, Charlotte Hornets, and Washington Wizards. And honestly, I might do two. Maybe I'll do the whole East next episode. We'll have to see. But just uh, listing those teams off, I feel like I won't have a whole lot to say. It won't make a really long episode like this one has probably been. So I might go on to the Central Division as well next episode, which will be the Chicago Bulls, Milwaukee Bucks, Cleveland Cavaliers, Detroit Pistons, and the Indiana Pacers. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. Follow the feed on Spotify. Give the show a rating. Check out the YouTube channel. Do all that stuff that I said at the beginning. And I'll talk to you guys next episode. Mm -hmm.